Hello there, and a very warm welcome to Des's Island Discs. In a hectic world, this is a little oasis of calm and nostalgia from our guests who choose pieces of music that remind them of a particular time or story from their life or career. Now, if you're listening on podcast, we cannot play the music because of copyright laws. But really, this is about stories. So let's hear them. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. Now, today's guest is one of Ireland's most popular columnists and features writer with the Irish Times. It's a pleasure to welcome Jennifer O'Connell. And Jennifer, you grew up in Waterford, so tell us about your childhood. Yeah, I, well, I was lucky, Des, in that I, like, I had a really, really happy childhood. Um, but I also couldn't wait to get out. I think a lot of people that grew up in the rural <laughs> Ireland of the 80s and the 90s, you were kind of counting down the days, a bit like we are again now. Uh, there was like lines on my bedroom wall nearly <laughs> when I could get out. And by the time I left when I was 17, I think we'd just got our first McDonald's, which was like the height of sophistication. Uh, and we had a multiplex cinema. So I thought I couldn't, I just couldn't wait to get out. And I thought I'd never get out fast enough. Um, and it is one of the great ironies of my life that I've ended up living, not just back in Waterford, but back literally in the house that I grew up in, uh, with my son sleeping upstairs in the bedroom where I was probably lining, marking off the, uh, the days on the walls until I could leave. But it's, it, that's kind of jumping to the end of my story really first, isn't it? Yeah, well, um, the circle of life, I suppose, isn't it? Um, it really is, yeah. And like, so the song that I chose, I mean, I, I so loved this task of having to choose songs that represented different periods in my life. Um, and the song that I chose for my first song was always going to be in the top three because I love it as a piece of music, but it also brings me back. Uh, I mean, it's kind of an anthem, actually, for various different periods of my life and various different really formative moments, uh, you know, as kind of a teenager and then emerging into adulthood and being a young woman in the Ireland of, of the 1980s and the early 1990s and also the early years of, of being a journalist. And it's a song that also really reminds me of the time that I met my husband. So there's a lot going on, a lot of pressure <laughs> on that one song. But, you know, I think for me, what I love about it is that there's a lot of passion in the song and, and there's a bit of darkness and there's a bit of anger. And what I look back on growing up uh, in Ireland, in the, the, so I was born in 1975, so I was like 10 in, in 1985. Um, and that was still like a very oppressive time to be a little girl, I think, particularly in Ireland. It was a very kind of forbidding country. And I think we sort of forget that now, but there was a huge amount of rules about how girls were supposed to behave, like everything from the kind of shoes that we were allowed to wear to, you know, how we were supposed to interact or like ideally never interact with, with boys. And there was the constant, you know, the constant backdrop of like the dark whispered stories about, you know, the fallen women and mm -hmm. the silly, stupid girls who got cut out. And I remember hearing those stories, but not really understanding what they meant or what they were alluding to. So there was that kind of atmosphere. It was like a low rumble of the background to my childhood. But then at the same time, I was really lucky to have had this incredibly progressive educational experience in the second half of my, my educational life. And also very kind of liberal parents who uh, really believed in us and told us that we could be everything. So, you know, on the one hand, I, I was going to school with the nuns, like a lot of girls of my age and women of my age would have done. And you know, in the nuns, the worst thing that you could possibly be was a notice box. Um, so and I remember from a really young age deciding that I wanted to be a journalist, but I had to keep that a secret because it sounded like such a notice boxy thing to want to be. So I, I, there was one occasion, I think, when uh, I was about probably around seven or eight in school and they asked us to write down on a piece of paper what we wanted to be. And I looked around the classroom and everybody else had written down um, a mammy or a teacher or a hairdresser or maybe a nurse 
and I had in my head that I wanted to be a, a journalist, but I didn't really know how to spell it, I don't think, and I definitely didn't want to write it down. So I settled for dentist, and I remember the nun picked it up and looked at it and went, girls can't be dentists. So which sounds so incredible now, um, you know, but it, it's not that long ago. So that was kind of the early part of mm. my education in Ireland. And at the same time, it was set against this backdrop of, I think, a lot of the seeds of the social change that we've seen in the last few years. Um, and when we talk about that social change, I think we talk about it as though it's a phenomenon that, that just happened in kind of the 2010s onwards. But actually, when I look back now uh, and analyse my childhood, and I, you know, obviously you don't analyse your childhood when you're a child, but I think that there was that Ireland of the contrasts was emerging. So, you know, on the one hand, you had all these rumblings about um, the troubles in the North and the private troubles in people's lives. And there was a lot of... It was a very like euphemistic place. We mm -hmm. didn't really talk directly about things. We talked about them in euphemisms. But at the same time, there was this kind of emerging appetite for change. And there was some um, really incredible female journalists that I would have been inspired by. And women like Mary Robinson, but also, you know, Marion Finucane and Nell McCafferty and uh, people like um, Emily O'Reilly in the Business Post, where I had my first job, and, and Aileen O'Toole as well. So, you know, you were kind of, you were, I felt like Ireland was emerging out of its, its chrysalis then and, uh, and becoming a much more progressive place. And for me, the move into a more progressive Ireland almost happened overnight when I was 12 years old. Uh, and I left the kind of the, the convent school and then I, I'd spent my last two years of primary school in this gorgeous national school, which, which was a really like lovely place and a really happy experience and opened me up to, to loving education, which I had until that point kind of hated. But when I was 12, I went to a Quaker school in Waterford. And at, at that moment, I think the world just opened up for me. Uh, and I had like the most amazing six years of my life, probably. Probably not, I wouldn't say of my life, because obviously having had my kids and having had a career in journalism, it was, uh, has been really incredibly fulfilling. But it, it was amazing in the sense that uh, I just suddenly felt the world was available to me and that I could be whoever I wanted to be and, and that it was okay to have views and opinions and to be different and to step outside the kind of the, 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 the very prescribed notions that there were about what a what woman should be. That was Newtown. So, you know, that was Newtown School, Jen. Yeah. Newtown School. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, and I remember saying that I wanted to go there when I was twelve, and my mum and dad were very doubtful about it because there was this idea out there, which I think there still is, that girls don't do well in mixed schools and, and boys do. But, uh, but so I, I, I put my head down and studied for the scholarship exam and won the scholarship. I was probably the only person in the history of Newtown that ever bothered <laughs> studying for the scholarship exam. Uh, so they had no choice then; they had to let me go. Um, so yeah, so I spent I spent six years there, and then I went to, to Trinity and uh, did European studies. And, and by then, I had a very clear idea of the path that I wanted to pursue to become a journalist. And it involved uh, it involved going to Trinity, doing European studies, and then spending a year abroad, which I chose to spend in Paris. Uh, and that is, that is where I met my husband. Uh, I was virtually only out of childhood myself, <laughs> uh, and so was he. But um, I sort of went to Paris full of ideas about how I was going to hang around in the cafes that Simone de Beauvoir used to drink her coffee in and, and write and all that kind of thing. But of course, I ended up working in an Irish bar <laughs> because what else do you do? Uh, and my husband was working there as well, and he was a manager uh, to it. So this song um, is was the backdrop to most of that year in Paris, working in that Irish bar, falling in love, uh, you know, formulating my plans for my career uh, and living in this amazing apartment on the Rue de Lyon with two the people that would become my best friends uh we had you know this gorgeous apartment with these big gilt mirrors but no furniture and no door on the bathroom and we all slept on like mattresses on the floor so it was, it was re really uh, parisian down to the cockroaches in the kitchen 
Um, so yeah, so when I, when I hear this, I kind of go back to that time working in the bar, uh, going to wine bars at night, you know, having your kind of your big plate of cheese and charcuterie and, and loads of red wine and sometimes finding yourself still there the next morning when the Parisians were coming in for their, their coffee and their baguette. I think if there's a 12 year old sitting in their kitchen having their tea or dinner now listening to you, they'll think, oh, my God, I want that dream life that you've just described. <laughs> but I'm sure there were hiccups along the way. But uh, your choice is the Cranberries and Zombie, one of the most played songs I've seen ever on YouTube. Yeah, that's right, actually, hasn't it? It's reached uh, it's reached a record. And I love the fact that it's finding a new audience now. I have a 13-year-old girl and she and her friends uh, absolutely adore the Cranberries and have Cranberry CDs and, and listen to it. And it still sounds so contemporary. I really, really, uh, I just love the whole album. Um, and it's one of those albums that I play all the way through without skipping any songs. But this song is so resonant. And I also think for me, then, when I became a journalist, this song became really tied up with the Good Friday Agreement um, and the ending of the Troubles, which all of which was happening at the time that I was emerging into journalism. So it really captures that, uh, that moment in our, in our lives and in our national history as well. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. Your second musical choice, Jennifer, brings us to Australia. How did you end up in Australia? Yeah, so, well, I suppose the decision to leave Ireland and go to Australia in, in 2013, it was kind of, honestly, about getting away from, from the recession. And, you know, Ireland at that stage was, was still really mired in kind of misery. And, uh, and I remember I'd listen to, to Morning Ireland every morning faithfully as a, as a journalist. You, you never miss it. But it became like almost a chore to listen to the, the gorgeous voice of Carl McQuilla, which is still one of my, my favourite sounds in broadcasting. But because it was just such a relentless diet of misery and it had gone on for, for, for it felt at that stage like years. Um, and I think, you know, my generation or, or people of my age, I think, were affected quite badly by it because of the age that we were having kids at. It was tended to be around the time that, that we um, made our first big purchase of a, a family home. So we had um, I, I had my first child in 2006 and my second in 2008. Um, and at the very beginning of 2008, we bought what was supposed to be our, our family forever home in, in, in South Dublin. Um, so by 2013, I had two small children and a house that wasn't worth half of what we paid for it. Mm. And I was trying to combine freelancing and, and manage the childcare. Um, and my husband came home one day completely out of the blue. And he said to me, um, how would you like to go to Australia for nine months? And my first reaction, to be honest, is I'm not that adventurous a person. So my first reaction was, no, no, I, I really don't think so. It's not a good time for me. I'm, I'm just starting to get some work with the Irish Times. And uh, the kids, one of them had just started school and the other one was kind of settled in Montessori. And nine months is neither here nor there. I was like, if we're going to go, we should like go. Yeah. Um, so I sort of, I, I knocked it on the head almost immediately. I said, I don't think so. You know, he worked for a tech multinational at the time that wanted him to go on this nine month contract. And then that night I happened to be going out to dinner with some of my friends. And I sort of said, you know, he came home earlier on with this really outrageous <laughs> idea that we should go away for nine months. And they all just looked at me around. There was deadly silence around mm. the table. And I was like, what? They were like, you didn't actually say no. And I said, well, yeah, maybe you've got a point. So I actually went home that night and woke him up at one o'clock in the morning. And I went, right, we'll go. Let's just go and let's not think about it. And three weeks later, we were on a plane to Sydney. Wow. So, you know, and, and immediately, like many Irish people who go to Australia, we decided everything was better there. The summers were better. The winters were better. The beaches were better. The people were better. The parks, the work-life balance. 
the school uniforms, you named it. I was like that really annoying person that was telling everybody that they were in Australia and Australia was better in every possible way to Ireland. Uh, and, do you know, it was such a happy year for us as a, as a family. We, we kind of, it was a gap year, really, like a grown up mm. gap year. Neither my husband nor I had ever done that thing of like leaving college and spending a year away. And um, I got pregnant with uh, who, who is our third child uh, when I was there. So I spent a lot of the year like just walking along by the beach in Balmoral, um, listening to music on my headphones, the sun kind of warming my skin, sitting in coffee shops, meet, meeting friends. Um, and it was just it was a really break from reality. And it was a, you know, an incredibly gorgeous time. And the song that I chose it, it, it reminds me of that time in particular because I listened to it a lot for whatever reason at that stage. Um, but it's also, a, for me, it's about motherhood and it's about being a mother, which is by far my most important uh, and best job and the most rewarding thing that I do. Um, it was written to John Lennon's mother and uh but but it, it, it's t- so it's to his mother but it, it really makes me it evokes so much of what it is about about being a mother especially in those like very early days when you're trying to kind of reach the reach a child and half of what you say is meaningless um so when the third baby was born she was born in in sydney at the very end of our nine month term there which had to be extended um because of we couldn't really travel with a, a, a one week old and um, we called her we called her julia and that's the, the song is julia by the beatles des's island discs on rte radio one you paint an idyllic picture of, of the australian lifestyle do you think you were more relaxed though because you knew you were coming home Definitely, Des. It was a, it was a break from reality, and you know, at, at certain points, we did sort of say, "What what if we could stay and should we stay and all that kind of thing." And then when we looked into the realities, we were on an expat package, which is an incredibly fortunate way to go and spend time in another country because you really don't have to worry about uh, the rent or the cost of living. But at that time, I think a lot of Irish people in Australia will will know and will have identified with uh, house prices there were much much higher than they were here, and our rent was hugely high. But it was it was paid for by my husband's company. Um, so you know it, it was a very artificial way to be there and when we looked at uh, the reality of actually staying there and, and making a life there I think that was one factor but it was also it was just it felt incredibly far from home uh, and I think it's really hard to imagine how hard that is until you've you've been in that situation where you know that you are a day away from your loved ones and you know you're a day away from kind of the support mechanisms that you need about you if, if things go wrong and I suppose while I was there having the baby and everything, and it was a gorgeous place to, to have a baby and to have a newborn, but it made me miss my family um, more and, uh, you know, want to get back to them. And, and, and like, I wanted little Julia to grow up knowing her, her cousins and her grandparents. And my mom is actually called Sheila and she was almost called Julia, except her own mother changed her, her mind on the way out to register the baby's name and, and went for an Irish version of it instead. So uh, little Julia was kind of called after my mum as well, so we we do we wanted to get we wanted to get back, I think, uh, but we also felt like the adventure wasn't quite ready to end. So we were looking around at options, and then in the middle of it all, I think the baby was only a couple of weeks old. Um, my husband got offered another role this time in California. So we decided again, and, and at this stage, I sound like I'm a really impetuous person who does things on a whim, and the, it couldn't be further from the truth. I'm like so uh, unadventurous and and kind of boring in a lot of ways. 
But I've become somebody who has seemed to have made these huge life decisions without giving it any thought whatsoever, which, to be honest, I don't recommend. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so we decided, we sort of looked at uh, what it would be like to, to move to, to the San Francisco Bay Area. And, you know, America is not somewhere that had ever massively appealed to me to live. Um, but we thought, why not? You know, we've made, we've made the move. We've left home. Uh, let's keep this adventure going for a little bit longer. So we moved when Julia was six weeks old to uh, to California, to a little town called Saratoga um, in the San Francisco Bay Area. And my husband uh, was still working for the tech company and I sort of started working for a tech company as well. And it was a very different experience uh, in every way, I think, to kind of the year we'd had in Australia. And did you have to get childcare and everything, I presume? Yeah, so not immediately. I didn't work for the first year. But the funny thing about it is that, like, although, you know, a place like that, it, on paper, it looks like an incredible lifestyle and in that you'll, you'll be paid these huge salaries. Uh, but in reality, it's, it's so expensive to live there that we sort of realised that I was going to need to crack on and get a job as well, which wasn't really the point of moving there. Yeah. Uh, so I ended up working, and I'm really happy that I got to have this experience. I spent 18 months working in a tech company, uh, it myself in working in the communications team, which was, you know, was one of those kind of mad things that, you know, I've mentioned to another mother at the school gate that I was a journalist at home and she'd friended me on Facebook and then I'd read a couple of my articles. And literally we went for coffee and over coffee, she said, would you come and join the team? So I didn't do any of the interviews that you normally do when you join those tech companies. Yeah. And I found myself um, writing uh, speeches and blog posts for the CEO of this tech company uh, within a couple of weeks of, of joining. So it, it was an incredible experience from that point of view. But like I discovered over time that it is a place that really fetishizes work. And we sort of got up on this hamster wheel where we were working all the time just to try and play the bill, pay the bills. And the kids were, um, were spending all their time in childcare. Like we had one childminder for the youngest. We had a nanny who collected the other two from school. And then they also went to this like after school club on their school premises a couple of days a week because we were both working just really, really long hours. Mm -hmm. And, it, you know, it, it was a really interesting experience. I wouldn't say that it was the happiest time that we had as a family. Um, the kids would do things like they do code red drills that would prepare them for the day that the shooter would come into the classroom and they'd have to pile all the desks up behind the door and get behind the door and, uh, you know, and stay very quiet. And I, I found that really disturbing, the idea that the prospect of violence was just being normalised for my kids. You know, that isn't what you move to the other side of the world, I think, to experience. But the musical choice from the West Coast, though, is still a happy one. Yes, because although it was a stressful, I would say looking back on it, it was a stressful couple of years. Uh, but this particular song that I chose reminds me of um, one road trip that we took that was like, one of the probably the happiest times that, that we had there. And every time I hear the song, it puts me back there. I'm sitting in the back of the RV and we drove down Big Sur down to from the San Francisco Bay Area down to LA and, and spent a couple of days and I had done a Spotify playlist and this song is kind of like, a, I suppose, a little bit of a corny inclusion on it. Um, but the thing that I love about it now, the song, is that it, I think it speaks to the idea that California isn't so much a place as a lifestyle and as a state of mind. And, you know, if you don't buy into that state of mind, it's kind of hard to stay there. It's hard to be there. So, uh, so I still really love this song, both because it puts me in that RV kind of bouncing down the, the highway with the incredible views out the window and my little kids in the back all happily rattling around and, and playing cards and stuff. Uh, but it also, I think it, it speaks to that idea of California um, as kind of an artificial place and, 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 and 
an idea rather than a home. And, and I suppose ultimately that was why we decided to come back, that we felt we wanted to feel at home again and we wanted to put down roots. So after two years there, we left and we came back. And it took me a while to look back on that time with any fondness because it was so stressful. But now I do, actually. I really remember the great people that we met and the, the really fun times that we had. And there were a lot of fun times and that this was one of them. And this reminds you of those. It's Californication, the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. So the decision to come home, I can understand when you speak about it, why you decided to leave the USA. Are you glad now that you've settled back, not just in Ireland, but in Waterford? Yeah, it's amazing to find myself back here. And again, like, it's like, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of worried about myself at this point. I make these huge life decisions with no research and, uh, and, and very little thought. So what happened was we came back in, uh, well, I came back first and then my husband followed a few, a few days later with the kids uh, in 2016 in the summer. And it was supposed to be just for a bit of a summer holiday. He had left his job and so we needed to reapply for visas through my job. I was still in my job, um, which was a process that was going to take a couple of weeks, maybe like four to six weeks. So we thought, perfect, we'll, we'll go home, we'll see the family. Uh, and I was able to keep working from home, uh, from here, from Ireland. So we came back and uh, we were full of like the, the furniture was gone into storage and we had all uh, the kids' clothes packed up. But we, we'd left our cars parked outside a friend's house and we were fully, fully committed to going back. And I was back here about 48 hours and uh, I changed my mind and decided I wasn't going back to California. And I can remember the moment when I made the decision. Um, I was sitting in Dunmore East. Uh, I don't know if it's a place that you know well, but it's a, yeah, a place very close to my heart. And I was sitting outside the Haven Hotel having coffee with my parents and looking out over the sea. And I was doing that kind of thing that you do when you're in a state of high stress where I was doing my to-do list outside, out loud. And I was saying, so I just need to I call the container company and the shipping company and I'm going to organize that and, uh, you know, get the, get the cars uh, moved from where they are to somewhere where we can store them if it's three months, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then when we go back, this is what we're going to do about junior high school and then high school. And my mum just was like listening quietly and she eventually said, or you could just stay. And I remember looking at her going, what are you talking about? That's, that's an outlandish idea, like ridiculous. But within, within about half an hour, uh, I couldn't get her words out of my head. And I remember walking through the village on my own and seeing all these uh, lovely houses for sale and thinking, you know, we could come back here. We could try it. So uh, I rang my husband. God love him. He was, he was in the middle of trying to get everything organized there. And he got a Google Hangouts message from me going, um, you know, with this house that was for sale with a link to the daft site and me just going, uh, why do we buy this? Like, why don't we just <laughs> come back here and live in this house? Uh, and I, I didn't get any reply. So I waited till he came back and we, we were kind of, uh, we were organising renting a car and stuff that we would have when we were home. We were on our way to the industrial estate. And I just turned to him in the car and I said, I really don't want to go back. I think I want to stay here. Um, and it was actually kind of an easy conversation after that. I think he hadn't realised that he was feeling the same. But when we examined it, there's just so much to love about living in Ireland. And it took, it took us going away to appreciate it. And not to be really romantic about it. I mean, there, there's a lot of problems here too. But I've really fallen in love with it again over the last few years, um, maybe for the first time. I don't know whether I ever had the objectivity to see what we have here. But I think like we haven't lost our sense of community and we haven't lost our sense of crack. And, you know, those are the kind of things you hear uh, all the time about Ireland. But for me, there's also I think there's something really good about the fact that we're less sure of ourselves than people are in other countries. And I think that makes us more open to other ways of thinking. And I think that's something really valuable that I, I hope we hold on to. Maybe we all need to be reminded of those positive things uh, 
Yeah, I don't recommend here. going to the other side of the world for <laughs> three years it. to figure it out. Yeah, it's an expensive way to find it out. Yeah, we'll take your word for it. Jennifer O'Connell, it was lovely chatting to you. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Des. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1.